Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Brandon Williams. Brandon is an independent mobile development consultant who previously led mobile at Kickstarter, and he's also the co-creator of Point Free, a weekly video series focusing on Swift and functional programming. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Yeah, thanks so much, Garrick. Glad to be here. Yes, thank you. I am so happy to be here, and I'm so happy you are here with us. I really am looking forward to this uh, this talk with you, this conversation with you. Uh, you and I actually haven't interacted that much, um, but I've been following you for a little while. I think I can't remember like what the original way was that I got connected with you. Maybe through functional, what's it called? Functional Conf or what's it called? The Functional Swift Conference. Yeah, I, I also looked up our, our first direct message on Twitter and I was on June 13th, which is the day that I announced I was leaving Kickstarter and that I was going into consulting and, and stuff like that. Wow. Okay. So how did you do that? Because I often want to do this, but how, how do you do? Did you just go back in time in our direct messages or is there like a better way to do it? Yeah, I just, I mean, we haven't had that many messages, so I just, yeah, just went back and you just sent me a hand emoji and I wasn't sure what that meant, so I just said, yo, <laughs> and then from there. Okay, so that was our first interaction. I'm so glad you found that. Um, I must have heard about you through Functional Swift Conference because, you know, I had interviewed Chris Eidhoff uh, and uh, interact with him and met him before, and then, you know, you guys do that conference together, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, we do it, and we're doing it again uh, September 30th in Berlin. Okay, awesome. So I definitely want to get into that. So it must have been like I heard about you through that, and then, yeah, maybe uh, I think probably through the open sourcing of Kickstarter and the work that you were doing with, like, Functional Reactive, Swift, and Android, like, you know, and, like, developers doing both, you know, uh, on at Kickstarter. They were doing, you know, Swift and Kotlin. Um, that's super cool, by the way. Uh, and so just kind of through that, and then when you said – you announced that you were moving on. Um, yeah, that's, that must have been it. So that's super cool. Okay, so that's why I'm super pumped to be talking with you. Uh, I don't know. I just like I love everything that uh, I see that you're up to and all the work that you're doing. And I, I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but like I kind of like see myself in you in a way like, you know, if you think of like a typical programmer or something like that, um, if you were to draw a picture or paint a picture, like you might not draw someone that looks like me or someone that looks like you. And uh, when I, I see you and you're obviously very super smart and dedicated and good at what you do, it makes me feel like I can I can be that too. Does that make sense? Mm. Uh, yeah, it's very nice to hear. Yeah, so I think that's why I was like also attracted to to like your presence. Um, okay, so what are you up to this moment besides recording this podcast? What are you up to? Yeah, I so I've been doing the the consulting thing for the past few months, uh, working with uh, a company uh, here in New York, uh, helping them out with um, like kind of architecture decisions and and kind of getting them uh, moving forward. And and I have a few other companies I'm just like kind of uh, every once in a while help out with. And that's been like the main thing I've been doing. And then in spare time, um, been working on this side project called Point Free, which I only announced a couple of days ago, um, which is like this uh, video series uh, on Swift and functional programming that I'm doing with my collaborator, Stephen Sellis. 
Cool. Yeah, I want to get into Point Free for sure uh, a lot, uh, a lot into it actually a little later. Uh, so you're in New York, right? Yeah, Brooklyn. Okay. I just interviewed Ryan Nystrom, and he's also in New York. So um, yeah. this is like back-to-back New York Yeah, episodes. yeah, I've met him a few times. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. cool. And so I just imagine you, you know, in New York, you're a pretty stylish guy. You know, you have a, you know, you're in a pretty hot, like, career, and you're just, like, walking down the street and going to get your coffee and uh, living the dream, as I always say. How does that feel? Is that at all right? Maybe it's a little exaggerated, but how does it feel? Uh, well, yeah, I, I love New York. Uh, I've been here also, yikes, maybe 15 years. Uh, I pretty much just came right after high school and been here the whole time. Um, I I briefly thought maybe I'd move to San Francisco, but also kind of like discounted it almost immediately. And, and so, yeah, enjoy it here. I'm, I'm glad that I can, can do work here, that I can do some tech here. Uh, it's not as big as in San Francisco, but then the city just has so much more to offer. And um, and there's a pretty good community of not only iOS and Apple and Swift people, but just like functional programming is pretty well represented here. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's pretty accurate depiction you have. Nice. So this is like, uh, back to back ads for moving to New York and working, uh, you know, like tech companies recruiting people to move to New York. Um, okay. So where did you go to high school? Like where'd you come from and why did you initially write off going to San Francisco? Uh, so I, I'm from Texas. Um, I, I grew up in Houston. Um, I moved to New York like right after high school. Um, and I, I went to college for math. And so I'd done programming in high school, but, um, kind of in spare time. And like, I even did some freelancing along the way and kept doing programming while I was an undergrad to pay for school. But math was like the thing I was actually interested in. Um, and then I, I left or I, uh, went to grad school after undergrad to like work on a PhD and, and just pure abstract math. Uh, and I was there for five years. And, um, and then after that, when I was ready to move on from that, I kind of decided academia wasn't for me. And so I, I picked up programming again, the entire time, five years in grad school, I did zero programming. Um, and so then started kind of messing with programming again, like that was iOS, I don't know, three or four, that's kind of like what got me into this world. Uh, and then sometime along the way, kind of seemed like San Francisco kind of was the thing to do. And I visited, hung out for a couple of weeks and just, yeah, I, I just, I don't know, New York just somehow vibes with me much better. Yeah. Okay. So there was a whole lot there. Uh, you almost summarized your entire, you know, sort of up to life uh, in just a couple of you know, seconds, minute maybe. Uh, so we're going to break that down. Uh you said you're from Texas, and you said you did a little bit of programming in high school. When did you first get into programming? It was the summer between my uh, 10th and 11th year in high school. Uh, it was the first computer I got. Um, I, I worked at a, at a steakhouse and saved money and bought a little, actually, I think it was a gateway computer, the cowl branding and everything. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, and it was it was Flash. Like Flash was like such a weird, amazing, like ultimately turned out like not quite, you know, future proof. But like at the time, it was really fun to experiment with Flash. And uh, I so I learned ActionScript in Flash Four, which in Flash Four you couldn't even write the programming language. You actually had to use a graphical interface to add what type of <laughs> statement you want. So if you want an if statement, you hit a plus and then you go to if. 
and you put and then it fills it in and then you fill in like the conditional it was really wild stuff um and so yeah that's that's what got me into programming um and it kind of i just kind of slowly picked up uh, more and more languages and ideas from there I love that you know exactly when it was between 10th and 11th grade in that summer and I worked at a steakhouse and saved up money to buy this computer. How did it occur to you to get a computer, to save up to get a computer? Like, why did you have that in your mind? Oh, you know, like, see, I mean, friends were getting computers. I mean, you know, it was like AIM chat. Everyone was on AIM and like I, don't know, I was left out. Like I, I needed to get a computer to be able to like stay, you know, to be able to communicate with friends. And you grew up in a household that you had to buy what you wanted or? Uh, yeah, I came from like a pretty meager household. So yeah, there was definitely no money to buy a computer. I, I didn't even get a driver's license uh, because like it would raise like car insurance for my mom and, and stuff like that. Uh, I didn't even get my driver's license until just a few years ago. Well, and you moved to New York. Why do you need well, a driver's yeah, license? I know. Yeah, that's why I waited a long time. Now that I have a driver's license, though, I would never go back to without one. <laughs> So did you grow up around computers at all? Or was that really your first sort of being around computers was the computer yeah, you owned? Entirely the first time I had uh, messed with computers. And I, I have a bit of a um, kind of like the kind of personality that really dives deep into something. And so once I had that and kind of discovered some of the, the weird things you could do with like programming and like various applications, like I probably had like a like a wares version of Photoshop and like all the weird things you could do with that. And like, they kind of just like, you know, sent me down that, that spiral of, of like going deep into that. Okay. So no computers really in, in family. Uh, it sounds like some of your friends had computers. Maybe you interacted with computers a little bit in school, possibly before you got your own. Uh, how did you, I mean, you said you just like going deep into things, but like, how did you decide or, or discover that you could program, uh, that you could do, um, you know, action script and flash? Like, how did you come across Ooh, that? It'd be hard to pinpoint like the exact moment, but flash, I mean, for like flash on the web at that time was like the only way to get movement. And, and it wasn't just like things moving, but you had gradients and vector graphics and like really interesting tweening of things. And so... To see that, like, it was immediately, well, what do I need to do to be able to do that? Um, and that, that gave a very, like, interest, like, that was just a feedback loop of, like, this is a very visual, amazing thing, um, and I want to be able to, like, make my own versions of this. Also, along, all along, ever since probably my, my freshman year in high school, I was very interested in math, and programming was a, a pretty interesting like playground for messing with like just interesting math equations and like seeing how things evolve, like fractals, all that stuff is so visual and, and you can just tweak a number and you get like this explosion of different things out of it. Um, I love that you just said fractals. That must be like the first time we've said that word on this podcast. Definitely not the first time I've heard the word. I love the way you said it too. It's just like, it's just exactly how I always hear it. Fractals. Maybe we'll get into that. Okay. So you, you were drawn in by the design, art, creativity, animation, the sort of human aspect in a way of computers, it sounds like. Yeah. Like the expression portion of it. That's For really sure. cool. Okay. So you got your computer, you uh, start doing Flash and start really getting into it. Uh, what, like, and then eventually you go to college for math. 
like what was like were you really into computers before you decided to go to college or was it sort of just like a side hobby and you were still doing other things uh i was i was very interested in it i mean i so i was able to like even get some freelance work while i was in high school and and i was making what i assume was probably minimum wage which back then was maybe like five bucks or or whatever um, at this steakhouse. And then out of nowhere, I got a freelance job where I was making $50 an hour. And it was, it was a little bit strange. Um, so I definitely like, I I enjoyed the programming. And then once I was like actually able to make money from it, I was like, yeah, this is, this is fun stuff and I can make a living from it. But I still actually liked math better than programming. Uh, and it got to the point, and I think it was because I was just taking freelance gigs that weren't, like the most exciting things they paid and I was just able to do it, but I was just kind of doing the work for some ad agency or making a flash game or something. Um, but math is really what I wanted to do. So, so then I went to college for math and the programming became more of how I like pay for school and how I can live in New York. Cause it's quite expensive. Whoa. Um, yeah. So you, you paid your way through school. You paid your move to New York. You paid your living in New York through programming while you were studying math. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, I think during, like I was slowly even upping my rate and everything. So yeah, I was able to rent an apartment, pay for food. And I I still took some student loans because I mean, I went to NYU and it's also very expensive, but I was able to keep it down uh, quite a bit and I don't know, survive in New York. And I was just doing the programming stuff, just like Flash games and websites and all types of really weird things. Wow. So no like no monetary help from family. You supported yourself and also took some financial aid in the form of loans. Wow. That's really impressive, man. Um, wow, that's awesome. Okay, so you're really into programming and you're actually taking on jobs, but what's really getting you excited is math. And so that's why you go to college for it. Um, I wonder how your excitement for computer programming turned into work. And it seems like you didn't yet make the connection between computers and math and like why that, why that is. And I, or I wonder how that happened. Yeah. I, yeah, I think my life would probably be quite a bit different had I seen this link earlier. Like there's the very superficial link of like you have a math equation and then you can use a computer to like, you know, like make that come to life. But like the deeper connection, I I didn't learn that until later. Wow. Okay. So you go to college for math at NYU. Are you doing any, okay. And you're still programming because you're supporting yourself. Uh, And are you doing any programming in school, like learning about programming in school? I mean, you're doing maybe math problems using computer languages? <laughs> no, I I focused on very pure abstract math. I did not take a single programming class at NYU. I didn't, I did zero like academic work in programming. I just continued doing my like Flash and even some PHP and stuff like that on the side. And my math was just like all highly abstract, very seemingly not applicable to programming, but although I learned later quite applicable, um, cause that's, that's just the stuff I was interested in, the very abstract stuff. And no one, while you're studying this abstract math is telling you, and like no one knows that you're into computers or computer programming. No one's telling you like, Hey dude, you can connect these two, not even your teachers. <laughs> no, or maybe I, you're just like a really private person and no one knew. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, 
inward facing probably. And also, but like all my professors in, in undergrad, I mean, they were mathematicians. They also did not really care that much about all the programming stuff. Um, uh, and highbrow. Yeah, yeah, that's the, yeah, that's people like, I think even probably today, there's probably a lot of mathematicians who aren't willing to accept the, the deep fundamental connection. Um, but, but yeah, at the time I was just kind of blissfully doing my math and, and loving that. But yeah. Okay, you're doing math and you're loving it, just as you said. Are you thinking that you're going to become, I think you actually mentioned this a little bit, like you decided you didn't like academics, but at the time you're thinking you're going to become a mathematician and you're thinking that the computer programming work is just going to uh, support that to graduate and then get a mathematician job? Right, yeah, I was, I was going to become be a mathematician, uh, you know, I, I went to grad school. In grad school, I was able to get a stipend uh, to help like sustain myself. So that's why I stopped the programming. But yeah, the, the idea is you become a mathematician, you get the PhD, you get a postdoc position, associate professor. At some point, maybe you get a tenure track somewhere, and you just you you do research math. There's a lot of like very simple fundamental problems that are like seemingly intractable right now and you like do research and and you have to teach a little bit also because that's a part of the gig but it's mostly about doing the the mathematics research did at any point did you think to yourself i am going to become a computer programmer or i could become a computer programmer full-time like actually i could just do this (laughs) full-time uh yeah not until grad school when i realized i academia wasn't for me okay and you eventually stopped programming because you got a stipend so so how long how long were you not like working as a programmer you know doing as you were before like when you had the stipend and all that yeah nearly five years oh my gosh yeah like no programming, programming at all whoa and the programming that you were doing up until this point it was web development or what was it uh it was web development but mostly through Fla- flash and then also some php backend stuff wow okay and is is mobile even on Earth yet? No. Uh, when you make this transition, the I think it was the my second or third year in grad school was when the iPhone first came out. So we were still like right like a year or two years since like an iOS that you could actually develop for. Um, and then it was a year after that that I started like looking into programming again because I I knew I I wasn't gonna continue after grad school. Okay, so there's uh, a really big question I want to ask, and there's like a kind of a small little cute question I want to ask. So I'm going to start with the cute one first. Uh, (laughs) And the bigger one is, how did you realize that you wanted to switch? But first, let's do the cute one, which is, what was like, what was your dissertation or like, what was your Mm -hmm. favorite math problem that you were working on at the time? Yeah, I I was working... um in an area broadly known as low-dimensional topology, which is the study of three- and four-dimensional spaces that you can continuously deform without changing any of their intrinsic properties. So like a sphere, even if you take it and like kind of stretch it out to be really long or put a bunch of bumps in it, you haven't really intrinsically changed what makes a sphere a sphere from the viewpoint of topology. Uh, whereas a donut has like this hole in it, and there is no way to continuously deform a, like a, a donut to a sphere because you get that hole. You can't, you would have to rip the sphere or you'd have to fold the, the hole on the donut to kind of close it up or something. So working in those parameters, you, you study three and four dimensional spaces, which turn 
for, for a very weird reason, turn out to be more complicated than five dimensions, six dimensions, and 100 dimensions. Somehow those dimensions are all simpler to deal with, but three and four dimensions are quite difficult. And then, and then more specifically, I dealt with how do you take those problems and lift them up into this world known as category theory. And, and that process is called categorification. Um, and you get like very strong uh, invariants and computations in that world that then drop down into the topology world and geometric world. Wow. Okay. So not so cute after all. Pretty, <sighs> pretty complex, deep stuff. Uh, is this related to that? You mentioned the donut, but that donut and the mug like theory where yeah. you like take a donut or a cylinder and you smash it down, but it still has the same amount of volume or something. What's that thing? And it relates to space, I think, too. Yeah, the joke is that a topologist is someone who can't tell the difference between a coffee mug and a donut because (laughs) you can take the the donut and you can just kind of start moving, like kind of deforming pieces of it to make the shape of the rest of the mug, but they both just have one hole and that's what like uniquely defines the donut is it's got one hole. Wow. Okay. And someone already mentioned this uh, on a previous episode. If anybody remembers who uh, messaged me, first person to message me gets some sort of prize. Not sure what. Um, All right. Topology. That's kind of like almost like land topology, right? Ah, No, that's that's topography. Oh, dang it. Okay. Mm. (laughs) Thank you. Wow. That's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Okay. So that was like your dissertation. That's what you were really focused on. Uh, Real quick before we get to the big one, are there, so you were saying there are still lots of really intricate, complicated or complex like math problems that haven't been solved yet? Yeah. Yeah. Or is it, is it like we observe things and we don't have a math problem to explain the, the, the the observation? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, uh, both really. Uh, in the theoretical physics world, like you would already know, like I kind of want this thing to to have this shape. Now I got to kind of discover the mathematics that allows me to describe that. But in the math world, there's still very very simple questions that have no answer. Um, I, so the 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 topic of number theory is just like the study of just regular positive integers. And something, so there's prime numbers, which are numbers that don't have any divisors. And there's twin prime numbers, which are prime numbers that differ by two. Like five and seven are twin primes because they only differ by two. Um, And the question is, are there infinitely many of them? Um, Still not known. It's such, I can just, you know, say it in just a few sentences. So now to say an unsolved problem in topology requires a little bit more machinery because the objects are a little bit more exotic. But there are fundamental problems that I could very easily state that still have no answer. And it's, and it kind of feels like there should be an answer, especially since math is the language that we express physics and so many other things. And are these things that uh, computers or AI or some sort of like neural network or something can solve? Or do humans have to solve them like with a pen and a piece of paper? Mm. Uh, yeah, so that, that I think goes to the deep fundamental connection between mathematics and programming and, and how a programming language uh, in the type system is encoded a, a logical system to express uh, theorems and proofs of theorems. Um, and so it is possible to write a computer program that proves a mathematical theorem. The fact that the program type checks or a compiler can compile it is a proof of a theorem. Um, it's not really how mathematics is done today, but it's probably how mathematics will be done in the future. And I wonder as like uh, the compiler and Siri kind of converge, like if you can have this 
conversation, like almost like uh, Iron Man. He has like these mathematical mm-hmm. conversations with his assistant, uh, whoever Jenkins or something. Yeah. Anyways, uh, you sh- you should listen to this episode uh, with Robert Widman. He is a second time Swift compiler intern at Apple. He's still studying. Uh, oh, yeah. I think you guys yeah. would. You, you know him. Yeah, yeah, he spoke at the last uh, Functional Swift conference. Oh, okay. uh, you should watch his video. It's it's wild wow. stuff. Okay, so it's just reminding me. I feel like he's into the same kind of stuff. Maybe it's oh, a, yeah. maybe it's related. Or, okay, oh, it absolutely. Okay, so we have to get to this question. Uh, you are doing your programming, and you're you're making money, and you're paying your way, but you're really into math. And you sounds like you graduate from NYU with like an undergrad in mathematics, and then you get a stipend and you go to graduate school and you you stop programming and because you're getting paid basically to go to graduate school and you're teaching and you're you're studying low dimensional compu- low dimensional topology yeah and but at some point and you you're going to be a mathematician in your mind and then at yeah. some point you decide uh, that you don't want to do that anymore and you want to do uh, maybe you don't know what you want to do tell us take us to that moment in time what were you thinking how did it happen yeah all that yeah I think I actually have a cute answer to the to this <laughs> to the, the supposedly non-cute question um, so uh, so yeah getting towards so I in grad school um, you have a couple of milestones you need to get through. You got like you have the uh, comprehensive exam that you got to pass in like the first year, and this is just like two days of very difficult exam. And if you don't pass it, like you're kind of out of the program. And then after that, you you choose an advisor. You pick a a topic that you want to become like specialized in that you'll eventually write your thesis on. And then you take an oral exam, and this is like just a strenuous two hour you standing at a blackboard and four professors just like firing questions at you. Uh, just trying to break you, um, and and then you get past that, and then it's just do your research and write your dissertation and defend your thesis, and, and you get a PhD. Um, so as I was, I had gotten past the oral exam, and I was, you know, finding my research topic and getting really deep into it, and then I was just seeing colleagues who were a couple years ahead of me; they were finishing, and I was seeing just how bleak it is to try to find a postdoc position. Uh, there's a handful of them out there, and you've got hundreds of PhD students applying for them. And then on top of that, you just have no control over your destiny of where you're going to end up. Like I, I could be in South Dakota or Oklahoma or something. and Take what you can get. Yeah, you, take, you just take it. You have to take it. And I don't know, coming from New York, that was, that was kind of difficult. And then, and so I was like, I don't know, I do kind of value being able to have control over my destiny a little bit. And so it was like, you know, maybe I need to figure out what I would do after grad school. And, and the cute part is uh, around that time is when I got my first uh, Mac. I got a little, one of those little white MacBooks. And and back then, because I was in school, the, the back to school special was you got an iPod touch with it, which they don't do anymore. I guess you get a Beats headphones or something. And it was that exact thing which got me to then download Xcode, figure out how I can put like a little dumb sample code application on it. And from there, it just kind of took off, um, which is very strange to, to think about because um, I, I didn't have that outlet yet of like where I could pour my energy. Like right now, all my energy was going into math. And I if I was going to find something, you know, post math, I needed something to pour my energy into. And so that did it. Wow. That's really, really great. Okay. So you are, you're like a realist and you, you, 
really value having control over your destiny. You don't just sort of, you really do. I mean, going back to the first story you told us of like, you wanted a computer, you got a job, you made money and you bought one. So like you really do value it. So that's interesting. Like you looked into the future very like in in a realist way, uh, in a smart way and saw that it did not match the lifestyle, uh, the life that you wanted to live. And so you at least knew where you didn't want to go, but did you, and then you got a Mac, right? Okay. So then you got a Mac and the next code, but like before you got the Mac, what were you thinking? Were you thinking like, okay, I'm going to go do this or I'm going to go do that. Or I don't know. Or was there really like, there was not much time in, in it, between? It was, it was a lot of, I don't know, but, um, and so people who do math are kind of fed this story, which I think is is not the reality of it, which is that, all right, so you're great at mathematics. That that means you can do anything. Like you can go do finance and you can do go do accounting and all these things. And I think uh, a lot of people take that very literally and just kind of think that they'll go do this pure math and then everything will just kind of be unlocked for them. And I think the pure math helps a lot, but at some point you really got to like learn a new domain quite deeply. And so I think what I was resting on that idea that, all right, well, I'm doing all this math, but all right, if I don't want to stay in math, I'll, I'll work for a hedge fund or something like that. And not, and no one was telling me that that's probably a terrible idea and I, I would not enjoy that at all. But like, I think it comforts grad students who are getting paid very little stipends to like like live very like I, I was my stipend was eighteen thousand dollars a year and I could pick up an extra two thousand if I taught a class during the summer um, and so yeah this idea that oh I can work for a finance company and all of a sudden I'll make like fifty times more than I'm making now and so I guess I was just like resting on that not really think of the realities and then the whole Mac and iPod and iOS stuff showed up just kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, so you were confident in the fact that you could do anything. So does that mean that you continued on the path of getting your PhD? Uh, so I left like just before like finishing my dissertation. So I did not get my PhD. Did you leave before you got the Mac? No, 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 no. I I got the Mac for like for schoolwork. I I needed to work in LaTeX, which is like a typesetting program and stuff like that. Uh, so. Yeah, so I got I got a Mac, and uh, it was just like easier to be like like a little bit more similar, like Linux and all that stuff. It was just a little bit easier to to just have a Mac, and um, and and yeah. So I got I I probably got the Mac like a close to a year before leaving grad school. Okay, so the time you realized you didn't want to 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 follow the mathematician path um, up until the point you left. Were you like, so when you decided you didn't want to be a mathematician, did you also, you didn't also decide that you were going to stop doing your PhD? Oh, no, no, no. I, yeah, I needed that stipend to to keep myself going. And, and yeah, being, being a grad student, like it's quite relaxed. Like there were no classes. I could have just, I could have been floated for another year or two before anyone really noticed. So yeah, I was just kind of staying put. I'm not going to be a mathematician, but I'm going to continue doing my PhD. Then at some point you get a Mac and then you discover um, programming and then you decide to leave? Yeah, I, I rediscover it. And it was just more fun to to work on a on iOS and iPod Touch. And the first thing I did was I, I made a game um, 
And it just, it was a lot of fun. And so then I started thinking about, well, if I need to leave grad school, uh, I could probably find a job doing this. Did you, when you say you rediscovered, that's totally true. Did you think about it that way? Did you think like, wait, I'm a programmer or I like programming or I used to program. That's what this is. Yeah. Did you think about it that way? It was definitely rediscovering because I was very rusty starting out and then slowly all the like ways in which I debug code or think about problems was like slowly coming back into my mind. It was, yeah, it wasn't starting from scratch, but it was very rough in the beginning and everything started coming again. Okay. So how did you discover Xcode? Like how did it occur? Okay. So you, you got the Mac, you got the iPod touch, which is like an iPhone, but without the cellular, right? Mm -hmm. That one was iPod. Okay. So you got that for free. How did it occur to you to, that you could program the iPod touch? Mm, Yeah, that, that I do not really remember. I, I can think of a few early moments where I would have like friends from back home like this was also the heyday of iPhone apps and friends like from high school remembered that I did programming back in the day and they would want me to like make an app for them. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. So there was some stuff like that sprinkled in. Um, the game that I made for the iPod Touch or, or for iOS was a game I'd made in Flash way back in the day. And that was one of the things that I, I really enjoyed and um, I kind of loved that game. So that was also like, well like games are huge on this thing and I would love to be able to play this game again. Um, so I think some mixture of all that stuff. And you had a Blackberry or like a, a Motorola at the time? You didn't have an iPhone? I did not have an iPhone. I probably had something that flipped open, like a, yeah, a dumb phone. Me too. <laughs> okay. And do you know it was Objective-C at this point? Yep. Yep. Objective-C. And it was like iPhone or iOS 3, 4? iOS 3, I'm pretty sure, because I remember adding like multitasking stuff, and I think that was iOS 4. Wow. Okay, so you're still doing your dissertation. You discover iPod Touch and iOS programming. Do you leave PhD to, uh, to um, what's the word I'm looking for, to go after um, iOS development? Yeah. Yeah, that was it. I uh, I even tried to make the game into a, a thing that could kind of sustain myself. I the, the sales I even got from the game were pretty close to what I was making in for my stipend, which isn't that, mu- that much, but it made me feel a little bit more comfortable about leaving. And then I got like a, a little bit of a freelance gig, I think, and then uh, joined a company for a little bit of time just to kind of like test things out. And then shortly after that, joined Kickstarter. Wow. Okay, what's the game called? Can we still get it? Uh, no, you can't get it. I, I really should remake it and just probably open source the whole thing. But it was called ISO Words, and it was a, a word game on a isometric cube where you connect letters to form words, kind of like Boggle, but it's wrapped on a cube. And as you get words, the, the cubes, if you use a face of a cube three times, that cube is removed, and you see into the isometric cube. And then there's higher connectivity between like neighboring uh, faces and it kind of unwrap like like you can wrap around the cube in interesting ways and I made like leaderboard like this was long before Game Center but leaderboards and daily challenges and uh, I don't know yeah it was it was a lot of fun and some people really loved it and were really sad when I um, had to take it down uh, in fact like when I announced that I was leaving Kickstarter and I was going back going like to do freelance and stuff someone who played the game and followed me on Twitter from long ago, like seven years ago, said he's looking forward to like ISO Words 2.0 now that I have 
time to work on this. Wow, it's super cool. Like I'm just seeing, I mean, maybe back when you first did it, the graphics were, you know, iOS 3, but like I can imagine it being today, like beautiful graphics and these amazing shapes. And I'm also thinking about your like low dimensional topology like coming into play somehow. And that's super cool. Okay. Uh, at any, I want to know like what, like who, I wonder who the most important people are to you, like who you trust and what these people were saying to you, if at all, uh, at, uh, at the time. So I'm making, like I can imagine like my dad, for instance, like I'm making money doing programming, but I'm going to go to college for mathematics. And he's like, uh, why? And then you're, you know, all this years of studying and you're about to get your PhD and you're leaving now to go back to programming. (laughs) And it's like, uh, why? (laughs) What are people saying to you, if at all at the time? Yeah. Um... Both of those times. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think friends I had in high school were uh, like a little bit surprised or maybe even annoyed about like doing, like giving up like this uh, very high pay. I mean, like at the time it felt very, very high paying. It was, I mean, to be a high school kid charging 50 and then a few years later charging $100 an hour, it was like, it was definitely like way more than I expected. So I think a lot of people didn't quite understand that, but uh, no one really told me anything. That was just like kind of jokes. Um, I, yeah, my, my whole family is, is more of like a blue collar family. So really none of this made any sense at all. Um, (laughs) and then when I was leaving grad school, like it was really my colleagues in grad school who were like my like kind of temperature check, like, is this the right thing? Uh, and they, I think it was, it was pretty clear it was the right thing to do. I I was most scared that, that leaving grad school meant I was leaving behind mathematics. Like I like still at this time I did not see the deep connection between mathematics and and computer science. And so I thought I was like going back to this world of making like games or working on a product or something and the math stuff just wasn't like going to be a part of my life anymore. Um and so that's what was, like scared me the most. And I, I try to keep in touch with math colleagues to keep that part of my brain going. But I was like, but my every day, there's like not going to be any more math. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the thing that scared me the most. But yeah, I, I, all, my, all my colleagues in grad school were, I, I, very few of my colleagues ended up even staying in academia. Some got postdocs and things like that. But pretty much everyone ended up going and like working for tech companies. Do you uh, remember like what you might have said or the type of things you might have said at both of those times to the people that you cared about most that cared about you? Like, you know, this is what I'm doing. Like, what, like, what did you, did you have to, what did you say to them? Um, I think, I, I don't know if I really had to say much because I think my, my kind of like life has been quite independent. Like, uh, you know, paying for school on my own and, and, you know, working to get my own computer. Like it's all been quite independent. So no one really, I never really needed to prove to anyone that like this was the right decision for me. I, I was able, I was quite free to be able to just kind of make these decisions. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I don't remember any particular conversation, like tough conversation I needed to have around this. It was mostly an internal struggle of whether I was giving something up that was and is very important to me. Okay, so you you um, leave 
you start doing, you start making this game, which is supporting you, at least to the level that you were already living during grad yeah. school. Then you start taking on contract work uh, and you join Kickstarter. Um, we're going to get into Kickstarter uh, after some announcements. Uh, and then we're also going to get into Point Free. So uh, one second, I'm, uh, let's see, let me get to my... Uh, my, I have a few announcements here. Uh, yeah, I've been doing this uh, a lot lately, and I actually really enjoy it. Let's see what I have. Okay. So for and, and yeah, and Brandon might step off for a bit. We'll see. Uh, maybe he'll even join us. We're gonna have some uh, guests join us live. Um. So for the first few announcements, I just wanted to mention that I have new patrons. Two new patrons. Uh, the first is Mark Johnson. Thank you so much for supporting me, as well as Motocash. And uh, you might know Motocash uh, through you know through the world of Swift and iOS. Uh, so go find out who I'm talking about by you know if you want do a little search, um, Motocash. And the so thank you to those new patrons. Thank you very much. Uh, the next thing I want to mention is related to Patreon, uh, and it's it's like a little sad, and I feel kind of like bad in a way, but I just have to do it, and I'm going to remove, I'm going to be removing all the rewards, so people can still support me, but I am going to be doing zero extra rewards, because I feel like all the work that I do is reward enough. Uh, if you look at what, I've, what I'm doing up to now, and imagine what I'll be doing in the future, uh, we have the Swift Coders podcast. We just launched the Swift Coders network of podcasts with two more, which I helped um, at least start, and I'm helping promote through uh, through the Swift Coders, uh, you know, platform. Uh, we have Learn Swift City. We're up to you know 15 Learn Swift uh, meetups all around the world. I have the Swift Coders Slack team, where people all around the world, especially in LA, come on there and and help each other out. Uh, and so I feel like I'm doing a lot. And so what happened was that the, you know, the amount I was bringing in through Patreon really wasn't enough to motivate me to kind of like follow up on the rewards. And it was like kind of giving me this guilt. And so I'm just not going to do those anymore. Now, anybody that supported me has supported me, uh, because they wanted those rewards totally free to just cancel your, you know, your, uh, your subscription or whatever you want to call it, your support. Uh, no hard feelings at all. If you want like some of your money back or whatever, let me know. I'm happy to give you all your money back. Or if you want to like play a little game with me and say like, well, give me this or that. I'm happy to have some fun and be like, okay, well, how about you, you know, send me a tweet or I don't know, whatever. We'll come up with something. Um, so yeah, no hard feelings, I hope. Um, but I'm still going to have that as an option to support the work I do. Uh, yeah. Okay. Now, uh, let's get on to the last, uh, segment. I'm going to send a link, um, to our guests, um, because I want to re, you know, I want to announce again, the Swift Coders network of podcasts, because I want to let you guys know about them, um, and potentially, uh, have you guys listen to these podcasts and, you know, share them with your friends and lift these uh, lift these shows up. So today, uh, I mentioned last week uh, Fireside Swift and the Learn Swift podcast, and we had Stephen Sherry join us this week. We're going to be joined by uh, the hosts of Fireside Swift, Stephen Berard and Zach. Uh, well, I'm gonna he's going to teach me how to say his name actually. So uh, Zach and uh, Zach and Stephen, are you with us? Hey, I'm here. How's it going? Excellent. Uh, I can hear you. Uh, 
So welcome to the show. Uh, you're on with uh, me and Brandon, and we just want to have you on real quick for a couple minutes to hear a little bit about your, you know, hear a little bit about the podcast, hear your personality, hear your voice, connect with you a little bit, and potentially you guys can leave with a few extra fans today. So uh, Stephen, Zach, uh, feel free to, get whoever wants to go first, tell us about uh, Fireside Swift. What is it and uh, what's it all about? Why should we listen? These kinds of things. Sure, I'll, I'll, a, lot of que- a lot of questions right there. I'm gonna let Steve handle all that. <laughs> all right, so uh, basically, Zach and I were talking before uh, you know you invited us here, and this is what we came up with. So uh, we'll, you know, you can critique us as whether or not this. I'm gonna is, judge uh, you really, so hard. Yeah, ju- oh, judge no. us, <laughs> judge oh, us on this. I'm already starting to sweat. All right, oh. all right. So here's our definition of Fireside Swift. Fireside Swift is a casual, informative podcast about the Swift programming language. We think it's unique because Zach and I are at different points in our programming journey. Uh, and our goal is to teach a new topic each week and hopefully bring a smile to your face. I love it. And when you say different from each other, different, you mean different from each other. Like you're a little bit more ahead and advanced, uh, Stephen. And Zach, you're still, you're a few years behind, I would say, in terms of experience or something like that. Is that what you meant? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. that's, I mean, that. Oftentimes, though, like it, it really is, it's, it's, it's really just different points because there's certain things that Zach knows deeper than I know, especially because he does his homework and I don't. So, so <laughs> I usually find out on the show, it's like, oh, wait, I didn't know that. Oh, I, and that's, I thought I did. And that's the best part of the show for me <laughs> is just surprising you with all of that knowledge. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, um, and uh, so for those, you know, you have heard Stephen before. We had him on the podcast. Um, and Zach, uh, so so real quick about Stephen, you know, I think head of mobile at Event Farm uh, in Santa Monica. Yep. Uh, Zach, a little bit about you real quick. Sure. I um, am actually really brand new to Swift. I started earlier this year. Um, I picked up programming because it was always interesting to me. And uh, I actually got a job as a, uh, a web developer. And, you know, developing websites is fun, but I've always wanted to have my hand in the mobile space. Um, my company's not doing anything with the mobile, really, so I took it upon myself to learn. Um, and earlier this year, I, I started doing it. I, uh, I listened to your podcast. You know, that has really helped me out quite a bit. And um, so I've, I'm working on my app right now. And that's, okay, that's cool. kind of where I'm at. And you're in Texas? I am in Texas. Where in Texas? Austin. Okay, cool. And uh, how do you pronounce your name, Zach? It's Falgu. 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 You got it. Oh, you, wow. I, I was, knew we would get there. I was saying that really wrong. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, real quick. It's okay. Everybody says it really wrong. Real quick. Why are you doing the podcast? Who is it for and why should they care? So we're doing the podcast for mainly mainly beginners, mainly people like me, right? Ba- basically people who won't disagree with us. That, <laughs> it, it really helps, especially trying to have a presence on Twitter. If people don't agree with you, things are usually smoother. Um, <laughs> no, so, you know, your podcast is great, but you have a, a pretty vast depth of knowledge. All of your um, guests really know what they're talking about. So listening to you, I could see where I wanted to be, but there aren't a lot of podcasts out there to help me get to that point. Um, you know, you have all of your, your, your books and your YouTube videos and everything else like that. There's, there's plenty of information out there, but not a whole lot in the podcast space. Okay. And what, what is in that podcast space is fairly serious, right? Like 
Yeah. Everybody seems to be like, here's the topic. This is what we're learning. <laughs> right. And this yeah. is what, how you do it. And that to me, it, it's fine and it's good. And then maybe that's what they, uh, they want. I'm a little more irreverent. I kind of take myself less seriously. I like having fun. Right. And, um, so I wanted to put something out there that would help me learn and maybe help some people smile. Okay, great. And what is the uh, next episode? If you can tell us all about uh, what can we look forward to? Uh, next episode, we're going to be doing on closures. Um, I, I, I don't really know uh, what we're covering on closures yet, but uh, that's what's so fun about our podcast is it just sort of comes out. Uh, like, like mentioned before, we're very casual podcast. It's really just me and Zach. As, just imagine us just being in a room going like, closures, what the heck are those things? And just a like, room with a fireplace. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah, imagine a fireplace there and just talk about it. So uh, what's your guys' schedule? Uh, we release every week, uh, hopefully on Wednesdays. Um, at least that's kind of been where we've been at lately. So, yeah. All right, cool. Uh, Brandon, any questions? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, Brandon, back to you. Uh, we're back with Brandon Williams. Oh, man, that first part of the, sh- uh, the episode so far, the interview, the conversation, is, is just really great. I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, for this part, I want to get into two major uh, things. Uh, your work at Kickstarter and the new project that you just recently announced, uh, Point Free. Um, so let's go chronologically and let's um, let's start with Kickstarter. So you're, you know, you leave, uh, you working, you leave the school. You're working on the game you're, that's supporting you. You do contract work, and then you join Kickstarter. How did how did that happen? How did you get Kickstarter, get to Kickstarter? How did it occur to you that you can even do that? These types of things. Yeah. Uh, well, so I started getting a little bit more active in like the tech community, going to meetups and kind of meeting people. And then through like a series of acquaintances, I um, met um, this guy, Gary Chow, who was the GM of Union Square Ventures, who was the main investor um, in Kickstarter. And we had dinner one night and he like, we talked about like, you know, all types of things. And it kind of ended with him saying like, all right, I'll just send out a whole bunch of emails to like portfolio companies. And it was like Tumblr and quite a few uh, ones. And I went on a number of those interviews um, and nothing felt quite right. Like I didn't didn't even know if uh, like a full-time tech job was really uh, right for me or anything, especially five years of grad school is like, so laid back like I was really on my own schedule with no no one watching me or anything um and but Kickstarter was one of the ones that he introduced me to and and it was pretty fascinating because they had no iOS app and so it was completely starting from scratch and uh I met with them I really loved the vibe they were <laughs> back then they were out of this really weird tenement building in the Lower East Side it probably should not have had a company working out of it it was like just three, four like apartment building with tubs and all the bathrooms, very cold and drafty, but like had a really good vibe to it. Um, and I really enjoyed the interviews and, and then ultimately they offered me a job to, to be their, their first iOS hire. Wow. Okay. The person that you said got connected, uh, that connected you with all these companies, um, like did we, was that person just a friend? Like, how did you meet that person? Or was this like an, like you actually went networking to try to meet someone for this goal? No, this was totally random. It was through like a series of very random acquaintances I had. 
over many months. Like I didn't seek this out. I'm not, I'm not good at networking. If it doesn't happen accidentally, then it, it's like, that's kind of the only way I can have these things happen. Um, so yeah, it was just like two or three, uh, people removed, like getting me through to this person. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned that a lot and, uh, you know, it's like people say networking, but to me, it's really just like meeting people, building relationships. Yeah. Okay. So you join Kickstarter. Are you prepared for this? Like, or do you have imposter syndrome? Like, are they just like, okay, build our app. Mm-hmm. And you're like, uh, what do I do? Uh, I, I didn't really have imposter syndrome. I don't think, I mean, there's definitely dark days, but I wouldn't say it was like a, a constant force that I was thinking about. Um, but it, it really was, not only was there no iOS app, but they weren't even entirely sure what an iOS app would mean for them or whether it's appropriate for them to have one. This is uh, in 2012, like it's January 2012 is when I started. And I mean, it was like, they probably should have had one and I was kind of happy to be able to work on the 1.0. So it was a little bit like loose of like what exactly this thing was going to be. They didn't have any like designs or we're really starting from scratch. And uh, the engineering team was quite small at that time too. Um, and there was, there's no API to communicate to. Uh, luckily I'd done quite a bit of Ruby, like over, like in addition to doing iOS, I had also picked up some Ruby. We didn't really talk about that, but that's not really worth talking about. Um, <laughs> and, and so luckily I was able to just jump into the backend and build out, uh, the Ruby API. And I ultimately created, uh, a lot of the infrastructure for like mobile payments and mobile checkout and, uh, over the years, I ended up like building out all of like discovery on Elasticsearch and like all types of fun things. That was actually quite fun to be able to do some backend. Uh, but after building out a lot of that infrastructure, then like we got serious about actually building out the app. Um, and so, yeah, then the focus was like, yeah, what is the 1.0? What do we want to give people? And it ended up being like a, uh, a blend of discovery tools um, you know, watching videos, making it easy to just kind of like browse through lots of projects and back the projects and then also some creator tools. So creators can get notifications when they get new backers, get messages, can track their progress, you know, throughout their uh, campaign and, and things like that. So did you work closely with the product team or did you sort of become the product team for the iOS app? So when I first started, uh, it was just me and one designer um, working on this and we were kind of doing like kind of some wild experiments, kind of going all over the place. Um, and it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe five months later that we finally got, like we hired a product manager and he came on board and then it was us three. And we were, we were the team that like brought it all together. Uh, and I would say once a product manager came on that focused, the energy that the designer and I had, and then all three of us were doing like really amazing work. Uh, and it was pretty good timing because that, that first four or five months, I was really deep in Ruby land, building out all the stuff that the app even needed. Uh, and then once us three started working, it really kind of became a magical team. Maybe I'm not familiar with the Kickstarter like history, but by this time, didn't they already have like a fully functioning website that was like really popular? Oh yeah. 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 This is, this is right when things started blowing up. Like, uh, just a few months after I started was when the first million dollar project hit and then the same day that that first million dollar project hit, a second million dollar project hit. That was the wow. Double Fine documentary. So, and, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I was yeah, that's really when things started blowing up. 
So why did you need to build like a, a an API? Like, didn't they already have an API for the mobile client? I, there, there was no mobile client. Like, they had a website, but there was no API for just getting JSON representations of like common models. Like, it really oh. was a standard Rails site of you hit this route, serves up the page, oh, and and so yeah, I, I just see. I needed you know JSON versions of all these things and some kind of specialized endpoints for you know particularly what I needed. So now, did the website eventually change to use your API? Uh, yeah, the site ended up using the API, and it all kind of evolved. It was it was built like in a kind of a RESTful API way. Um, but then, I would say about a year ago, uh, uh, we started converting over to like a GraphQL uh, oh, API, and whoa. that's like that's going to be the future of the API at Kickstarter. Oh my gosh, there's not going to be time to talk <laughs> about GraphQL. Uh, we we had uh, Nicholas Burke on. He works uh-huh. for. Uh, graph cool yeah which is okay so but but who knows maybe we will so wow you not only built the you know ios you know the version one all the way up to you know five years five and a half years later open sourcing it it's in swift you also built the api that that the android i'm assuming ios and the 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 front end like web works you know uses consumes right right yeah it's quite a bit and so they hire you to do the ios app but they didn't they weren't like, hey, and we will also help you with product and like MVP and like this is what it should do. They like sort yeah. of like it's up to you. Yeah, it was it was a very small team uh, at that time. I don't know, maybe maybe a dozen engineers and like three or four designers. It was it was just a small team, and like yeah, the site was definitely far bigger than. Uh, it seemed like like a team like that. Like it was just such a small team. It wasn't a priority. Yeah, I think people. Yeah, it definitely wasn't a priority too. This was like I was hired and like kind of and then then uh, my colleague uh, Andrew Cornett was the designer and we just like you know kind of jumped on it. But we kind of went uh, like flew under the radar for a while and then finally we got a, P- a PM. But yeah, it was it was just kind of a loose like. Um, it was like just a very talented group of people too. So they were able to like this team was able to get a lot done with such a small team, but. Yeah, I, I kind of had to like pull my weight to get the the native things that like iOS needed. What a great opportunity! Um, at the time when you first took the position, did you look back and and think like, okay, I I made that decision. I left the math mathematics thing, and and now it has kind of paid off. I realize it was the right decision when you first got hired at Kickstarter. Did you think that something like that? Oh yeah, yeah. That was yeah. Joining Kickstarter was made me feel much better about the prospects of a post-mathematics life. Nice. Um, it was a very fulfilling job, very exciting. I got to, uh, you know, work on something that was going to have high visibility. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty great. Okay, so for those that might not know, uh, just before, like maybe a month before, uh, you moved uh, on from Kickstarter. You guys open sourced the entire application, iOS and Android, correct? Yeah, it was a little bit. More. I I left uh, at the beginning of June, and we open sourced in December. Oh, whoa! Yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay. Wow. Awesome. Okay. So, and you can go check that out. Uh, you know, it's on it's on GitHub right now. Uh, I've played around with a little bit. I've looked a little bit. Of it. It's very. Um, a very unique style, very specific, you know, way that you guys did that. And maybe we'll even get into that and you can watch, you can go take a look at it. You know, uh, it's online, it's open source. Okay, so you start 2012 and uh, just this past June, 
um, you you move you move on. So it was in Objective C, and then is the current open source um, iOS app all in Swift? It's all in Swift. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Oh my gosh. So, can you take us through some of the highlights of like that five and a half? Uh, yeah. because that means that you rewrote the entire app, um, assuming you started on day one, mm-hmm. June 2014, open source December 2016, in just over two years? Uh, we rewrote in, I believe, one, under a year. Oh what God. was the 2014 date? I think, yeah, so it came out yeah. June 2014. Uh, 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 no, no, yeah, we didn't start then. Uh, we started uh, quite a bit later. Oh my gosh! Okay, um, so that's a quick rewrite. So the the history is, I was the only iOS engineer or native engineer period for three and a half years. Um, it was the the app was you know doing well. It was. Um, I mean, before we even made a, another hire, that over $100 million have been pledged through the app. Uh, it was accounting for like 20% of pledges daily. It was like, it was doing well, but also like we had been able to get it doing that well with a very small team. Uh, at that point, both the PM and the designer that I had worked with had moved on. And, and so I started collaborating with other people, but it was just kind of doing well. And the company never really prioritized like turning it into a thing. Um, beyond what it was. And then uh, what happened was a, a back-end engineer wanted to kind of switch things up and kind of like stop doing Ruby and wanted to do Android. And it kind of got that point where people were like really upset that we had iOS and no Android. Ah, um, like people, so, you mean cu- uh, customers, users? Yeah, yeah, backers like re- and, and creators. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it was like, it was, yeah, we were in 2015 and still no Android app. Wow. Um, so it kind of got time to get serious about that. And around that time, we hired our first iOS uh, engineer. Besides uh, you. A woman named, what's that? Besides you. Besides, yeah, besides me. <laughs> uh, first, the first uh, colleague, true colleague I had. Um, and it was Gina Benetti, who was a, a close colleague and uh, like really was instrumental in all the wild functional programming stuff we were doing. I believe um, I saw her give a talk with a coworker. Maybe it was Lisa. Lisa about yeah. the um, how they do inputs and outputs, the inputs and outputs protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. they gave that talk in Budapest. Okay, awesome. Love that talk. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so uh, so we're doing that, and we're, we're working on the Objective-C code base, um, and, and then kind of priority shift to Android being, like, the thing that uh, we kind of got to get kind of get got to get done. So so the backend engineers started dabbling in the Android. Uh, I started learning some Android. Wow. We had an intern who Lisa, <laughs> she was an intern for Ruby, weirdly, and um, and then was like, no, nah, I don't like Ruby. Uh, I want to do Android. And so she was learning Android, and we later hired her as an Android engineer once she graduated from Dartmouth. And so we became a team of four, um, kind of a strange team, two iOS engineers who had only done Objective-C and two engineers who were just learning Android, and we decided to kind of slow down development on the iOS app, which was doing just fine, and get the Android app going. And all four of us kind of learned Android together. And because it was a team of four, and we're like, you know, starting from scratch, we decided to like, 
like I was very interested in functional programming, but that was not my day-to-day reality, writing functional programming. And so I, I suggested we, we do it in a functional way. And, and one of the like popular ways of, of doing UI in a functional way is using a functional reactive framework. And we used RxJava. Um, that's where we really like developed and, and figured out how we wanted to handle uh, inputs and outputs and side effects and testing and all that stuff. Like Android was, and we were doing Java at that time. That was weirdly the place where we learned wow. a lot about about functional reactive programming and functional programming. Um, and we, we all four of us did it. It, it was a lot of fun and amazing. We shipped it and we kind of like sat back after that and we're like, one, uh, it kind of is a bummer to have to go back to an Objective-C <laughs> seeing all this amazing functional stuff. And even though Java is not my favorite language, uh, there's certain things that can make it nice. Like there's something called Retro Lambda, which allows you to actually use lambdas in Java. So you can use like just a little arrow to say like X maps arrow to some you know function or something. So like there were some niceties there. Um, so that was one thing. And then the other thing was like we're like also this code base just kind of feels amazing. Like this is a type of programming I'd never really experienced before, especially on such a large scale production app. The testing was amazing. We were being, we were testing stuff that I just did not think was possible to test. And so then that's when we are like, it would kind of be fun to like open source this. And it, that would like kind of be a great thing that the Kickstarter engineering team could contribute to the community. Um, so, so the next step was we decided that we needed to get the iOS app into Swift and we needed to also get the entire team learning Swift, just like we all learned Java and Android. And so that's what spurred the rewrite. We, we just like, we know this functional program stuff very well now. Let's just get all the Swift stuff. Let's get Swift in. Let's, we'll all be like, we'll just be one unified team doing both. And so we kind of like took that hit to like try to get us all together um, on Swift. Wow, that's so surprising. Uh, I just assumed that you either did it at the same time, like the two iOS and Android open source projects, like you kind of built those up together at the same time, or like the iOS app informed the Android app. I would never Mm -hmm. have guessed uh, that the Android app, which it sounds like really informed the, uh, the iOS app in terms of the style. It's, yeah, it's pretty wild to think about. But yeah, that entire input-output paradigm, the like just kind of blindly feed all user inputs um, into the system, and then you have outputs that describe the side effects that the view will execute. Like that entire thing we completely did uh, in Android first, and that's where we like learned all the ins and outs of that. So there are a lot of different topics in there, you know, like testability and functional and reactive... Uh, you said it sounded like Gina was like a proponent of functional, I think you said it sounded like, or maybe reactive. Like, were you guys all sort of discovering this together or were, I mean, you had been there the longest. Were you sort of the lead of that or was it really just like this team collaborative effort? I I was probably the impetus of it. I was I was leading this thing, but everyone was also just very down to try it. Um, I think... They, you know, if, if I could kind of show the benefits of it, if I could show how it can uh, increase, like, testability or understandability of the code in isolation, if I could show how it can reduce bugs, like, people got very excited about that. 
and and I like I'd still never actually shipped an app written in a functional way. Like I got excited about the functional stuff because of how close it was to mathematics. That's what I was like very excited about. And so I knew it like was going to have its benefits, but it was still very much an uncharted territory. Uh, and luckily, just all my colleagues were just very excited about it. Um, and so we all learned it together. We went in really deep. Um, and there were lots of ups and downs, but like it, it kind of all paid off. And, and in the end, we were a, like a team that could do Java and Swift and Android and iOS. So you, were you guys pair programming the whole time or most of the time or some of the time? We did tons of pair programming. It was really everyone just was always immediately available for pair programming. We were in Slack constantly throwing out questions and almost every question would lead to a pair programming session. We just did it at our desks. It was never, there's never a scheduled time for this. It was just like, if you need it, like, let's talk. Um, and we also did a weekly meeting where we just all like did a round table, uh, hour long, but often it would go longer to just like talk about like interesting ideas and problems. And we would like, share articles and just kind of discuss, you know, programming as a general idea and, and sometimes even just pull up a pull request we had opened recently and kind of walk through and, and kind of discuss ideas or problems we were having. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a very intense time of learning. It sounds like a dream. Uh, it sounds like a dream team. It sounds like a dream opportunity. It sounds like it must have been really exciting, really fun. It also sounds like you had the freedom to really get into it and be patient and do it uh, how you wanted, how you guys wanted to do it. Um, did it take some convincing to tell your uppers, you know, your superiors that this is what you guys were doing or were you guys still sort of isolated doing your own thing? Um, so we were still mostly isolated. It, it, it was around like the time of the Swift rewrite that it was – it was becoming harder to be isolated. Um, like the when we started the rewrite, there weren't a lot of big company priorities that we had to be working on. The the apps were kind of doing their thing at this point. Like the native apps were more like twenty five to thirty percent of uh, the daily pledges, and they're kind of doing their thing. But there was nothing really prioritized that we should be working on. So we decided to invest in infrastructure so that we could like build out things faster and more understandable and, and like, you know, ship with confidence and things right. like that. Um, but then like towards the end, uh, priorities started coming up and uh, like it was no more us working in isolation. But fortunately we had, we had done the infrastructure work and we had like well-tested, well-understood code bases, a team that just got it and like, you know, ready to like, you know, use this machine we had built. Is the current open source Android app in Kotlin or Java? Uh, mostly Java. Like the 1.0 was all Java. Uh, we didn't experiment with Kotlin at all. Uh, but since then, there's been pieces added in Kotlin. Um, the The Kotlin Java story is a little bit different from the Swift Objective C story in that Kotlin is 100% interoperable with uh, Java. So there's no code you can write in Java that you can't call from Kotlin and vice versa. Like they just fully talk to each other. Um, so that makes it very easy to just slowly introduce Kotlin. Uh, like app code 
even allows you to just like select a whole bunch of Java code and just instantly convert it to Kotlin code. Um, so, so like we just slowly introduced Kotlin pieces into it, and and now Lisa pretty much leads the the Android over there and like and is slowly adding uh, Kotlin as they go. Is the um, interop between Swift and Objective C not the same then? How how so? Uh, well, so if you, for example, if you just have a Swift enum with an associated type, that code is uncallable from Objective C. You just can't do anything with it, and there's no such thing in Kotlin and Java. Everything they all everything talks to each other. It's it, it it's fantastic to have, but it also kind of means that there's things in Kotlin that are always going to be a little bit subpar because it kind of is being held back by Java. But they're also like you, you still have enum types in Kotlin and you, and you can have associated values, but they approximate that in the Java world using like this abstract superclass that then each of the cases are a um, subclass of the abstract class. It's very strange. And then Kotlin has to do some work to do like exhaustive checking and stuff like that. So they're, they're able to approximate it, but it's still going to kind of hold Kotlin back a little bit. Uh, were, were you... Always going to uh, open source it, or at least was that a difficult decision, or was that an easy decision? Um, I don't know if it was easy or difficult. It kind of just like uh, popped up. I, well, I mean, Artsy, of course, is like the real like they they did this long ago, and they they've done a fantastic job with it. I would have never thought to do it unless I had seen them do it. I think the thing I get most excited about was I wanted to show people a very large code base of a very successful app for a successful company making millions of dollars of money with this app written in a functional way. Like to show people that like functional stuff is not just academic and is not It's functional. It's functional. Yeah, it's very (laughs) functional. And so I want to show, I want to like see like, hey, here's a a very large app that four people, you know, worked on. And um, so that's what got me most excited about. But I would say from the day that we first started talking about to when we actually did it was like probably like eight or nine months because then we were like working on the Swift stuff and we're like, oh man, it would be actually pretty amazing to just open source both of these at the same time. Like really make it like a huge moment for like native engineering at Kickstarter and things like that. And so, yeah, so then December came and we we did the the big push. So you held off uh, until you finished the iOS app and got re- that ready for open source and then you open source right. both together. Right. Okay. And then when, uh, r- real quick, was it, did you have to convince anybody like superiors that you were going to open source the code and was that difficult? Uh, at the beginning it was easy, but it was also, we weren't like doing it right at that moment. So people were just like, oh, okay. Yeah. That, that sounds cool. Uh, once it got to the moment, it did, I think, uh, scare a few people. Um, but we just tried our hardest to convince people and, and ultimately we did. Like we were just saying things like, well, this is great for hiring. Like, I right. mean, not only, you know, people like working on open source and stuff like that, but like like there's no better way to judge like what kind of situation you're walking into than just to literally go to the company and check out their code base, check out their pull requests, see how these people communicate with each other. Um, also, we wanted to share these ideas with the the community. Like like it's engineering, like kind of open sourcing is the only way you get to share your work. Right. Like designers, they get to say, like point at the website and say, hey, I designed this and I, you know, made this entire 
uh, information architecture thing. Look how great it is. And engineer, you're just like, well, the site works and there's no bugs back. And it's like, yeah, my, my code is running there. So we, we wanted to be able to like share it and like, you know, show this code. And then also um, maybe about six months before Kickstarter become a public benefit corp. And, uh, and it was kind of like, there's a mandate that the company has to be held accountable to of like, you know, to, to do good and to like kind of, put good things back into the community and and each team in the company is kind of like asked to find out ways that they can do this and and it's just like one of the things that engineering the engineering team could do is just kind of share all the things we learn like you know there's just really no secret sauce in this native app like we we should just be sharing this information uh, after the android um, app and as you start uh sort of rewriting the iOS app in Swift with the same same style as Android, did the work on the iOS app inform any changes uh, to the Android app? And so you sort of built them up together, although, you know, the Android app sort of was already in existence. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, big time. No, we we definitely, bouncing back and forth, we learned something each time we, we bounced in. And the thing, the biggest thing that we learned uh, was that because now we're working with Swift, we had a stronger type system, uh, we can express more at the type level than at the like kind of runtime level because um, Java, they're types, but you can just smudge them anytime you want, um, can cast to anything and it's all fine. Um, so we, in the Swift world, one of the biggest things we learned was actually the the right way to think about uh reactive programming. In, in the RxJava world, there's the concept of the hot and cold signal or observable. And this bit us so many times. Uh, the you, You'd have this like observable and little did you know that if you just do a like a dot subscribe on it, somewhere in the background, this fired off an API request to do a bunch of work. And if you then took that observable and subscribed again, it's going to fire a whole other API request. Whereas kind of intuitively, I would expect that this, there's this observable and it's just like kind of like a, a notification of values like being emitted. And if I subscribe here, I'm just going to, when a, a value comes in, I'll be notified. And if I subscribe over here, when a value comes in, I'll be notified. And instead, like these two things are just firing independent, like completely disconnected uh, API requests. And we struggled with this quite a bit at the beginning. It was really kind of starting to feel like maybe we had made a wrong, like we just didn't know enough about Reactive Program to be like going on this journey. Uh, ultimately, we did like rein it in and we we got comfortable, like more comfortable with it. But then we switched over to Swift and we used uh, Reactive Swift, formerly Reactive Cocoa, uh, which com- separated the types of hot and cold. And I think a lot of people don't agree with that. But like as someone who's n- written a lot of RxJava, and written a lot of Reactive Swift, I can say that we understand this concept and understand when a side effect is happening or not entirely because of the types. And that w- completely informed how we started doing our RxJava. Interesting. Wow. Okay, a couple more things, and then I want to move on to Point Free. Uh, I think when I was digging around the open source code, I saw that you guys were co-locating your tests. Oh, yeah. And uh, for those that might not know, that's where you're at least keeping the test file next to, like, you know, if you open the the project in Xcode, it's, you know, in the same sort of area in the project navigator, perhaps even in the same area in the actual directory. Um, But it still has its own test target, I'm assuming. Um, Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, no, just tell us a little bit about that. Was it good, bad? Have, yeah. Oh yeah, it's great. It's great. I highly recommend it. Um, it's the the test files. Like Xcode does not care where those files are. They can be absolutely anywhere because ultimately you associate them with a target. Um, and so the idea is like, why are you maintaining this like parallel universe of test files? when typically there will be a test file that is associated with an actual implementation file. Um, so you completely remove the maintenance of this other world of directories. Uh, so you just throw the test file right next to your implementation. Uh, and then all types of benefits pop out of that. Uh, for one, like the two files are just sitting right next to each other. So if you have your little sidebar in Xcode, it's very easy to just to flip back and forth between those two. Uh, second, if you open a pull request, uh, GitHub uh, alphabetizes the files in the diff, and you will have the implementation and the test sitting right next to each other as you're scrolling down. Um, and I mean, you know, I honestly kind of think there may even be a world in which the test code is actually in the implementation file. I was going to ask you this. Yeah, there's like languages that even allow that. Um, but, you know, we're not there. So, like, you don't have to do that. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it, and this idea is, is not like unique to Kickstarter or anything I've done. This is, uh, I mean, there's languages that even allow test code being in, in the implementation, but I think uh, a library that popularized, at least for me, was Jest, which is Facebook's JavaScript testing framework. Uh, and in that, you just put the test right there with the implementation and it's all quite nice. Yeah, I mean, I only noticed it and was able to understand it because I think someone had mentioned it previously. I think if it was maybe Jesse Squires or maybe maybe someone at um, Artsy, I can't remember. Um, you mentioned putting the test in the same file as the implementation. Uh, it's technically possible right now with my Swift uh, files. Um, so I guess if you wrap your implementation in like a, an if directive where you check if like a, a flag is set, you wrap your implementation if like if not test running and then you wrap your tests in if test running, then only those two blocks of code will be. And then you add that file to both the test target and the your application target. Then you could, tech, I think, pretty much have tests and implementation all in the same file, but that probably isn't worth doing that. I don't I don't think I would recommend that. Okay, and by directive, do you mean like a macro? Yeah, yeah, that little pound if, and okay. then you can like say a, a flag. Is that because like, let's say I want to run, build and run my app, I don't want to compile my tests. Right, yeah, yeah, and you, you can't even compile the tests. Um, okay. And so yeah, so that would prevent any of the tests from compiling in the application target and would prevent any of the implementation from compiling in the test okay. target. Uh, one reason I can see wanting to do this, and perhaps there's another way to solve it, is if I have a... Um, class and maybe I just make the class private then to the class actually that's right mm -hmm. okay so I have a, a class it's only used by another class so I can make the class private but I want to test it so I need to make it you know public but yeah. then why not just put that class inside the other I guess right yeah that and also is it even proper to test a private uh, thing like that because if it's private it means it's an implementation detail and you should probably be testing it something higher up in the funnel uh, and like testing the output lower 
rather than testing something in the middle. Uh, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. One, maybe two things uh, before we go to Point Free because I really, really want to have enough time to talk about Point Free. Um, and I don't know, maybe, yeah, uh, real quick, um, engineering management and developer happiness at Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Uh, yeah. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Yeah, I well, so I became an engineering manager, but was also still doing um, individual contributions. So I was kind of like in these two worlds, um, and so I, I was leading the the native team, iOS and Android. And I I don't I don't know if I'm the best at engineering management, but I what I did see that I could do was identify. Uh, things that help improve developer happiness and developer happiness is, is this thing of like, like this, this accepted attitude that I think a lot of programmers have of that. It's just accepted that you will always hate the code that your former self has written. If you open up a project uh, three months or six months from now and you look at the code, you'll just regret everything. That idea that just like everything about programming is like terrible, the the tooling is terrible, like all these things. I, I, you know, after working on the Android and the iOS and getting this functional code base and getting the testing in, we had screenshot testing, we were working on interfaces and playgrounds, we were doing all these things. And I was like, this is like a, a type of developer happiness I've never experienced. And I, I don't regret this code. I I would happily go back and work on the Kickstarter code base. Like that was a fantastic experience. And so what I focused my energy on is, is how to, to make it so that engineers enjoy writing their code, not scared of their former past selves making like bad decisions. And like I really, that's, that was the flavor of engineering management I had. And I, I've given like talks about this because... It's it's new to me. Like when I was writing that Objective C three plus years ago, like I was in that world of just regretting everything, and I was just like putting band aids on, moving on to the next thing, and I, I've just completely changed my entire attitude based on like what I've learned from the functional programming and and testing and things like that. I uh, love all that. I really relate to it. For um, me, when I was at Farmers, uh, to me, the way I viewed that, the way I understood it, was like making the project more enjoyable to work with. So that's like maybe a subset of developer happiness. Um, yeah. And that that was really important for us, at least for me at Farmers, was just like making it more enjoyable to work with the project. Less warnings, compiler warnings, you know, uh, Swift format, Swift lint, uh, less compiler, yeah. uh, console warnings, um, you know, speeding up compile times. Uh, where can we go to learn more about this? You said you uh, have some talks. Did you write about it? Did you read about it from other people? Yeah, the the talk I was referencing is is a probably a poorly named uh, talk, but I'll I'll stand by it. It's called Finding Happiness in Functional Programming. It was a talk I gave in Budapest at the Functional Swift Conference. Like we've we've done this conference five times now, and I think that was the, it was the one from uh, 2016. And so you can go to. Um, funswiftconf.com. Chris Idoff registered that domain. Um, and it's the Functional Swift Conference that we do. Uh, I think we're going to start doing it twice a year. Um, and so uh, it was in Budapest, and I, I just gave this presentation about how functional programming like unlocked something like the, my approach to development. And it, I, I saw it as a way of like building relationships with my like fellow engineering colleagues, but also product managers and designers, like being able to 
like see their visions through and provide a code base that they could trust, like analytics tracking. We had full test suite on. Uh, for the designer, we had screenshot testing in every language, like English, German, French, Spanish, Japanese. Every time we push code, 800 screenshots are generated for every language, every screen, every state, every weird subtle edge case, and the designer could see them all and, and make broad changes to style guides and, and see every you know spot like a problem popped up. Um, so yeah, that, that I went pretty deep in that and that's where I talked about a lot of this like playground driven development I've, I've talked about a lot and things like that. Was that 2016? That's the 2016. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, wow. It sounds like a really cool place to work. Um, assuming, you know, it's still, you know, it's still like that and maybe even improved under Lisa. sounds like a really, really awesome place to work. And it sounds like you're talking about process, develop software development process. At least that's a part of it. And that's one of my favorite parts about uh, being a software developer or software development in general is like, is the process, how elegant it can be, how beautiful it can be, how streamlined, efficient. I love all that. And that seems like uh, sort of what you're talking about yeah. at least a little bit. Okay, so it's it sounds like, you know, strawberries and r roses and ice cream and, and unicorns and sunshine and rainbows uh, at Kickstarter. And then you um, you uh, move on from Kickstarter in June. Por qué? Why? And the reason I ask is because there's probably people just like you who have spent half a decade at a you know company and, and invested all this time and but they might be considering this and they might be wondering because they know about you. And I don't know if you've talked about this yet. So um, uh, if it all, if you're you know, comfortable sharing it all, just let us know. Yeah, I, so yeah, there for five and a half years and uh, my role like towards the end had become like, not only was I an engineering manager for five or six, or maybe it was even, seven, may I think six people, uh, but I was also the, the tech lead for the team. Uh, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work, and I, I like as we've covered previously. I, I'm like the type of person that goes quite deep into something and really, like, <laughs> kind of obsesses maybe a little bit on certain things. And I think I was just ready to uh, release some of that and go back to like a little bit of a simpler uh, life. And and I, with all the great work that I had done at Kickstarter and that the team had done. I started also becoming interested in the idea of like like other companies that might want to like have access to these ideas and and how can I help other people to do it because I love teaching. When I was in grad school, I had to teach the whole time and I I organized the graduate student seminar and I would go to conferences and speak and stuff like that and I like I want to be able to like help other people do this stuff. Like I want to spread this functional programming stuff a little bit more. Um, so I that kind of crept into my mind and then. Uh, last time Chris Sidoff was in New York, we were having dinner and he told me that I should just start doing a version of like Swift talks that he does with Florian, but we're just like functional programming in Swift. And he's the one who even gave me the name point free. Um, and so then I was like, yeah, I, that sounds like incredibly fun. I love, uh, like giving talks and I love teaching. And so then it was just like at that moment, it's like, all right, I think maybe I'm ready to leave and that. I can like do this consulting and I can work on this new side project point free and and I've kind of like been enjoying it quite a bit. So I wonder if there is a name for this sort of shape, but in a way you've come full circle, but more than that, going from computer to math to computer programming. And I 
think now, as we're talking about Point Free, back to a beautiful connection with math, which it sounds like you found at Kickstarter through functional programming. You rediscovered or you actually discovered maybe for the first time the connection between the work you're doing in computer programming and science and math. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah the math stuff really came while I was exploring functional programming uh, while at Kickstarter. Um, somehow never never saw it back in grad school. So yeah, I wonder if there is a name for that shape. Uh, okay, let's talk about point free then. Uh, we mentioned it a little bit, uh, at least I mentioned it a little bit um, in the intro. Just tell us about it. Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm going to be a. So we haven't. We've only announced this. We haven't actually launched yet. We'll have our first episode uh, later this year. But I, I'm doing this with uh, former colleague Stephen Sellis. Um, uh, I met him at Kickstarter. He started uh, like two years ago. Um, and he's the author of the very popular SQLite.swift uh, library out there that I know a lot of people use. Um, and he's also very much into this functional programming stuff. And we've, a lot of the, the uh, uh, wild things that we did at Kickstarter in the code base is like it was a very strong collaboration between him and I. And so we're, we want to host a, a video series, a weekly video series where we take a, a functional programming concept and like just kind of play around with it. Uh, we'll like use Swift Playgrounds, we'll live code, we'll talk about it, we'll dissect it. Um, and like the hook is, um, you know, at the, at the end of the episode, we, we've always got to ask the question, what's the point? Like what, how, how do you use this? Is it just abstract nonsense or like can we actually use this to like benefit? Uh, point free is a, a term from functional programming where you compose functions uh, without ever like feeding data into it, like you you could just compose them, but you never like take an X and really put it into a function. The X is called a point in the point-free styles, where you never even plug in data. You just compose functions. Um, so yeah, so yeah, uh, weekly video series. Um, Meaning, for episode. instance, that like X is not X. Like you know, let X equal five or something. X is actually a function that returns five. Something like uh, that. No, no. And you start it, it, with with no, that the the x would be like a let x equals five. But say so you could so say you had like an array of integers and you and you could you know dot map on it, open up a closure and do dollar uh, sign zero plus one, and then okay. dot map it and open up a closure. And so do is that an example of point free then? No, that that's points because you're you're actually referring to the 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 values that you are. Uh, that you're plugging into the function, the dollar sign zero is the point. Um, so point free would be if you instead had a function called add that goes and actually messes with the points and takes an X and a Y and returns an X plus Y. And then you could just do dot map add, or you could, um, or I'm sorry, add one or increment. Um, and you just, you, you just write, you think in terms of data flow and not the data you're operating on. Or like just mapping like, and transformations. Yeah, yeah. And, I think uh, uh, we found the first episode for Point Free. Oh, yeah, we, we got to explain Point Free in the very first episode <laughs> of Point Free for sure. A uh, little sneak peek, a uh, little breaking news for you yeah. folks here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll so... Do a, sorry, okay. go ahead. I'll do a better job of explaining in the first episode. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Okay, sorry, I cut you off. You were explaining sort of, uh, I think, the schedule or or the plan going forward. Yeah, so uh, weekly videos, um, functional ideas, breaking them down, but also always having 
to have like the responsibility of bring it back down to earth and show how these ideas aren't so far removed from like the, the code you write every day and how like they can increase testability. And so, you know, some sample uh, topics would be really just a, like an episode on functions, like really, you know, what does it mean for a function to have side effects and what are pure functions and how do functions compose and what properties do functions have? Like a really kind of disciplined look at functions. Um, and then we want to, you know, be able to talk about, you know, like topics that have a, like for good reason, just have an error about them of being like very intimidating, like, you know, functor and monad. Monad, and, yeah. And yeah, all these, and that, you know, they carry so much context and it's so hard to break through that context. But the, it is, it is kind of fascinating to see what languages like Haskell and lately I've been a big fan of a language called PureScript, uh, which is inspired by Haskell, but compiles down to JavaScript, like what they can express in the type system. And, and you know, someday maybe these features will come to Swift and, and we kind of want to also kind of theorize about what it, what it might look like in Swift and what, what new things it unlocks the stronger you, the type system is. Okay. Um, Sorry, continue? Yeah, uh, yeah so, so just functional programming and, and Swift. Okay, so it sounds like it's mostly going to be using Swift to uh, talk about functional programming concepts with, at the end of the day, a um, a uh, valuable, like actual useful reason to, to use these concepts in perhaps Swift and, uh, and app, Apple development or Swift development. But if there are concepts in functional programming that don't exist or can't exist yet in Swift will use other languages to explain those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we would love to to like hop over and show like a little bit of Haskell and PureScript to see like, you know, how these things look in, in these languages that do have these type level features. Is there a lot of functional programming uh you know, concepts or, or, or things that in, in these other languages that don't exist in Swift? Is there a lot? Yeah, yeah, there's quite a bit. Um, I think slowly, like some of these things will come to Swift, and and then sometimes a feature of Swift will unlock like an approximation of what like Haskell and PureScript can do. Like the conditional conformance stuff will unlock like interesting ways of approximating things. But but yeah, there's there's a lot of like heavy type ideas that are in Haskell and PureScript that are just not possible in Swift yet. Yet. <laughs> okay, so it's cool to hear, though, that there are features of Swift that are coming that, though not intentionally, you know, you know not necessarily supposed to be used for functional programming, will unlock functional programming, um, you know, capabilities. Um, you know, we have a platform here with this podcast where we can really talk directly, you know, I guess technically indirectly, but but we have, you know, people who you know work at Apple or work, um, you know, on the Swift uh, compiler and standard library. They listen to this podcast and, you know, I get feedback saying, like, hey, we'll love to hear this kind of, uh, you know, talk from people like you. So what's like, you know, one or two things that you want to see? And, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah I, I've also talked to a number of compiler engineers, and I I really respect all of them. I think they like they've produced a language that uh, that is can be quite safe and can give a lot of um, like understandability and isolation. Like you know, people using optionals, like the fact that like now we have this thing, and I think a lot of Objective C developers have never really thought about the idea of having a proper type for optionals. Um, so so I see them coming at it. 
from a very pragmatic perspective, and they they want Swift to continue to be approachable. Um, I you know I, I live in this fantasy math world where I just I want. Uh, like a type system that is just stronger and stronger and stronger and allows me to express more and more ideas in the type level and not at the runtime level. So just as optionals can tell us that this thing is nil or not nil at the type level, I want more of that for more ideas. And and so, and so Haskell uh, has the idea of higher kinded types. These are so uh, optional... If you just say optional, it's it's not really a type. Like optional int is a type, optional string is a type, but optional on its own isn't like exactly like a type because it you feed it a type and you get a type out of it. It's it's a type constructor. Um, and in Swift, we stop there. We we can say all right, generics allow us to plug in a type and we get a, a type out of it. Um, in Haskell, you can use that type constructor concept as a first class thing. So. I can give m to a function and then in the body of that function feed it a type to produce a whole new type out of it. And that is currently impossible in Swift. So higher kind of types unlock a a pretty big world of code reuse uh, to be able to treat type constructors as first class uh, uh, objects. Um, And then there's just tons of other stuff. There's there's something called row polymorphism um, uh, or extensible records, and and both PureScript and Elm have this, where you get to you can take a struct, like like imagine you had like a struct in Swift, and you have all these fields, uh, and you pass a value of that struct to a function, but that function only uses one single field mm. from that struct, but but you pass like a, a whole bunch of data that it didn't need, and if you if you really want to keep your data like isolated and reusable, you should only feed the data needed. And row polymorphism or extensible records allow you to, to kind of destructure that struct and just say, I'm, you're going to pass me a value and it has this one field and then like kind of like dot, 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 all the other stuff. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about that other stuff, but as long as you pass me a struct that has just this one field and who knows what else, I can run this function and I can do stuff with it. That stuff is very, very powerful. And would um, you do that at the func- function declaration or as the first line inside the implementation? Of the yeah, function? yeah. The function, in, instead of a, a, an argument of the function like taking a user, it would take a like a curly brace ID colon uh, int. And it would be, you can pass me any struct uh, inside here as long as it has an ID field with int. Okay, I'm going to put my crusty hat on for a second <laughs> and say, can we do this with protocols or keypads? Uh, so you can do it with protocols if you want to maintain a protocol for every single field uh-huh. of every single struct you've uh-huh. ever you have in your entire code base. Right. Like this is the compiler providing wow. all this stuff for wow. you. Okay, and so you said you've talked to some people. What are what's the feedback you're getting? Is is this something that you're going to have to uh, do yourself in terms of writing a manifesto or doing the implementation, or do you have some? Um, some co-conspirators, uh, uh, some 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 support. Yeah, uh, no conspirators. They're all like really interested in these things, and of course, they're they're very. I mean, they they're of course very well versed in all these things. Like, there's nothing I can tell them about type systems that they don't already know. Uh, I think the biggest thing would be to uh, make the case of like why we can use them to in our applications today, and how they reduce boilerplate, reduce. Uh, 
uh, like, you know, crufty code and like enable code reuse and kind of unlock really powerful ideas and then get other people excited about these things so that if like a year from now someone, you know, writes to evolution list and is like, hey, these extensible record things from Elm and PureScript are like pretty powerful. Maybe there's like a lot of people who can be like, hey, this thing is pretty cool. And I, the, I've seen some of the Swift compiler engineers specifically talk about row polymorphism and extensible records uh, on Twitter. and th- Like they're aware of these ideas. It's, it's now kind of like spreading it to other iOS developers who may not hear about these fancy type theoretical things and like get them kind of engaged in this so that they can like be excited about it. Yeah. And that's where pure, uh, sorry, point free, uh, comes in. You're going to be talking about these types of concepts. And so, you know, maybe you won't be writing the manifesto, but you'll inspire the next person to write that manifesto because the community as a whole is realizing that like these features will be really great for Swift to have. Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, so point free. What I really, I just, I mean, I, I saw the post, um, you know, that you know you announced because I actually saw you tweeted something like, "I'm going to be announcing something soon," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, what's happening here?" Uh, and so I followed up that day and saw, you know, that you um, launched point free, and you know, you are you're saying you guys are, are advertising it as this ve- video weekly video series, which it is, but. To me, it's actually more than that. It's more holistic in that way because I finally checked it out today. And unless I'm understanding it uh, you know, incorrectly, like it is, it's like this holistic Swift, functional Swift thing that you're doing because the website, and I'm assuming maybe even the way the video is going to be hosted and fed, is all written in Swift. Am I wrong? Yeah, it's it's all the entire site runs on server side Swift. Uh, we built like a kind of a, a lightweight Swift server side Swift framework from scratch, um, and it's all open source. the The page that the sign up page that's up there right now, if you go to pointfree.co, that's running Swift and it's on GitHub. You can see it. We wrote an HTML DOM library in Swift. We wrote a CSS library in Swift. All that, you you build HTML by just creating a, a data structure in Swift that represents the HTML, and you can apply CSS, which is also just a data structure in Swift, and it all renders out in the most minimal way possible. Uh, we got uh, middleware. We've got, like, we're handling side effects. It's all it's all tested. We, we're doing snapshot testing where we can take screenshots of the web page at different sizes to see breakpoints and that's committed to the code and and tests like run to make sure that pixels don't change and we even build the pages themselves in playgrounds you can like create a request and pipe it through the middleware and load up a web view in the playground and show the web page that came out on the other side it's all like all this stuff like pops out from the functional programming stuff in like really magical ways. And as we were working on it, it was like reliving Kickstarter all over again, where every week some magical new thing would pop out. And it was kind of hard to imagine that this was even possible. So the whole thing is open sourced. Um, And we are going to build the entire site open sourced, everything. And it'll it'll be the topic of uh, uh, episodes. And we just want... Like, I don't know. I, I don't think I could go back to working closed source. Like that Kickstarter experience really kind of unlocked something in my brain. And so I, I just want to constantly show people what it is we're doing and how simple these things can be. 
you are my hero. I'm like, my eyes are closed. My skin is tingling. I want to tell you, I love you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, are you guys hearing what he's saying? Like, I actually, when Swift came out, I knew I could do all these different things. And then it was open source. And then I could do server side. And I didn't really know what that meant. But I always kind of wondered, could I do web development? And, and, if, and again, if I'm Unless I'm misunderstanding you, you're basically saying you can create – and I know you could kind of already do this with like uh, templating languages and stuff like that. But I think this goes beyond that, I think. You're it literally does. creating an entire interactive website, almost – yeah, like almost like a modern day – maybe it's not quite there yet, but like a modern day interactive website entirely in Swift. Are you guys listening to this? Are you hearing this? This is insane. Am I, am I wrong? Am I right? So yeah, it's all built built in Swift, and and the the thing that is most unique about it is that like playgrounds. I mean, playgrounds have been truly transformative, uh, like for everyone in the world. I'm sure that like has messed with them, but like for me in particular, like I I don't give a talk that isn't me just life coding in a playground these days, and to to build a like an entire web page in a playground, mess with stylings, do all these things. Like I can even create a post request, which typically is like doing database work and all this stuff. But because all the side effects are all isolated, I get to send a post request through and verify that the page on the other side is going to look the way it looks. And then the screenshot testing, this is also quite unique to the Swift setup because because we can run these tests in Xcode and we can run, we have like UI web view that we can load up a web page, take a screenshot and then verify that it didn't change when I refactored this code over here. Like those, those two tools right there are quite unique to Swift. And then on top of that, we're, we're doing the entire framework from scratch in a very functional way so that we are able to test very wild, wild things. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's a lot of fun. I encourage you to go check out the repos. It's github.com slash point free CEO and all the code is just there. You can watch Stephen and I work on it as we gear up to launch our first episodes. This is this is like to me revolutionary. This is taking Swift to like the next frontier. Like everyone's focusing on server side Swift, and this is a big part of it, but you're also now take doing web development. And I wanna ask, but it's kind of coming to me right now. It sounds like and I saw you import WebKit. WebKit is open source. And so you, you, you're you using WebKit. And I'm assuming Safari uses WebKit. And maybe on like a Mac, Safari uses NS WebView maybe. And like on the iPhone, Safari uses UI WebView. And a WebView renders, you know, HTML. And then WebKit, like I think Google uses, Chrome uses WebKit. And so you're you're writing Swift. It converts it to HTML, and that HTML gets rendered in a web view. Am I am I and CSS? Am I is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It gets rendered into the web view, and then and that is what it's going to look like on the vast majority of devices that are going to like, run, like a Chrome and Safari. If it looks you know passable in those two uh, browsers, you're pretty good. How are and, sorry? Go ahead. And so yeah, and then yeah. Take a take a screenshot. You you've got it right there in your test suite. You've got it sitting right there. Take screenshots. You can do all your different breakpoints from mobile to big desktop. Uh, you can even do wilder things where you can actually frame the the web page, the UI web view inside a like a, a parent view, so that you can make sure that the stuff above the fold, like when someone goes to your website fresh, what is it that's showing above the fold? You can have a test 
that proves that the things that you think should be above the fold, the call to action or whatever, is above the fold. You have like a, like that like designers like would kill for this I'm, kind of I'm thing. I'm sorry, like Brandon. Like you're telling me things that I should be getting excited about, but like my level of excitement can't go any higher because I'm still <laughs> stuck at the fact I, that you are like Swift developers can now be web developers. And like, how are people not talking about this? I read the comment section when you announced Point Free. I don't think I, I saw anybody mention this. And when I first, uh, you know, heard about Swift and it was open source, I immediately thought about doing web development. And how is nobody talking about this? Or am I just missing it? Are people talking about this? Like, well, yeah, people are talking about server-side Swift for like, you know, there's um, there's a few frameworks out there that are doing Stencil some of these things, right? Like, uh, so, all right, so no. So there, this is quite unique to what we're doing at Point Free. Uh, yeah, everyone is doing templating languages like Vapor and Katura. This is beyond they, that. Yeah, this is beyond that. No, this stuff... Uh, re- representing the HTML DOM as just like a basic value type. It's just structs and enums. You can do all types of fun stuff with this stuff. Like I can make a function that just walks the DOM and like redacts all the text on the screen by just replacing every character with like a black square. But beca- it's just structs and enums. I can just walk this tree, making this transformation, and then render it out. Or I can walk the tree and remove like deprecated nodes and like all these things because it's data all the, like all the transformations you've ever done with arrays and dictionaries like that it's like an exercise in just doing dot map transform this node and dot filter and things like that it, it's it, it really like this is the way you should be rendering out html dom and css and stuff like that and yeah the other frameworks tend to focus on yeah stencil and mustache and, and stuff like that Elma's I don't know if Elma is also one or leaf or something no vapor Elm leaf is something. doing it like the what's vapor that? leaf I think right vapor and leaf uh, and yeah so the the I wrote about this pretty extensively on my website where the downsides are well the upside is that you get all of what HTML has to offer to you immediately because you can it's just a text file and you write your HTML tag and you're done but there's so many downsides oh there's, really uh, <laughs> There's a lot of downsides. Uh-oh, dun, dun, yeah. dun. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into it. Oh, well, so for one thing, uh, the people who maintain those templating languages, they're basically creating a whole programming language. Like, oh. they add if statements, they add for statements. They're, they've created their own programming Sorry, language. Sorry, you're for saying Jesus. downsides to templating. Ah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying yeah, yeah. downsides to what you're doing. Look, man, no, I have no. to be honest. No I'm only interested <laughs> in what you're doing. Like, ah. I don't really care too much about the template stuff. So, like, are there yeah. downsides to what you're doing? There has to be. But, like, uh, yeah, okay. how, how, do, how, uh, does, yeah. how does what you're doing overcome those downsides you were just going to talk about? The, so that one I was just about to say about them inventing a programming language, you, you get to use Swift. All the features that Swift has to offer, like, if you want to, you know, iterate over a list of nodes and apply an attribute or apply a class to all those nodes, you just, like, literally dot map that array and add a class to the class attribute and you're done. Uh, there, there probably is no such thing in leaf and stencil and mustache like the idea of just iterating over nodes and adding a class they probably don't even have support for that so you just because you're dealing with a basic value type you just get to do all the swift fun stuff you would ever want to do with these things uh so so you don't have to wait for someone else to implement a language feature to to like do these things i might have missed it uh do you have a sort of getting started with this um full stack web development in swift 
uh, library that you've created. Essentially, it sounds like a library, so, or maybe, or style. Yeah, yeah, the, the, there, there's staff. a whole family of libraries. Um, so if you go to the point-free organization on GitHub, you'll see all of our repos. The readmes are describe at a top at a high level what they all do, and then we have a pretty extensive test suite that shows how to use them. Uh, I, don't, I don't think, I wouldn't tell anyone that they should be using these quite yet because they're not very stable. It's not like we've done a point one release or anything. Uh, but you can see the tests. We've got playgrounds, of course, everything. We do everything with playgrounds, and the playgrounds are checked into the to the repo. So you can just clone the repo, build the project, and run the playground, and then start messing with it. Um, and, and yeah, so hopefully as we build out point three, we'll get to the point where we are like, all right, this is a 1.0 for our HTML library. And you can replace templates, just like text templates, with building your DOM tree in Swift. Yeah, people uh, people are going to start talking about this. This is a project that should be getting uh, open source contributions. If and when I have time. No, you know what? I will make time. I'm going to learn this. This thing's really interesting, and I will definitely submit a pull request. Uh this is yeah. this is really really cool stuff. I've always kind of wanted to do web development, but then I wanted to make iPhone apps, and so I didn't want to have to go ahead yeah. and like learn a whole another platform. And now yeah. uh, I feel like I'm way closer to being able to do that. And uh, it's it's a it's a nice language to do web development. Like the type system is stronger than a lot of the other popular languages doing it, like Ruby, Python, and, and JavaScript. So it's it's nice to be able to use Swift to to write a, a website. Oh, wow. Okay. Anything else on point free? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, Steve and I will have our first episode later this week. Uh, so the, the web, the page that's there right now, we're just like kind of gauging interest of like who wants this kind of thing. So we just got a little like sign up form to say, yeah, I signed you know, up today. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, we'll let you know when we launch it and then we'll be doing weekly episodes and, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I hope you get a lot of signups. Uh, if the number of signups you get, you know, changes how you think about whether you're not you're going to do this or, or uh, you know, how much effort you're going to put into it. Well, first off, I think don't worry about it. Uh, if you build it, they will come. Uh, and you, you know, I, I, in any way that I can support you continuing, not that you need my support, uh, but if if I can support you to, you know continue on this path you're going I will I will do that and I will tell everyone out there listening right now if it is the case that you know Brandon gets signups and therefore we'll do more of this stuff go and sign up right now at pointfree.co.co .co. okay awesome. <laughs> .co, yeah okay awesome wow 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 thank you so much Brandon okay we're at like two hours so and you're Yikes. three hours ahead and it's you know Sunday for you know Sunday night I want you to get good sleep you still got to eat some dinner uh, so I think we should probably just end it here. It's been an amazing episode. What do you say? Yeah, sounds great. Thanks so much. This was very enjoyable. Yeah. Okay. So let's do this. Um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> let's do quick couple little uh, rapid fire because they're just fun and people people uh, people like it. I like it. Uh, what would you say drives you? Um, f- finding deeper universal ways of expressing ideas and in, in like in like programming and 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 things like that like wow. i get that from the math world just like wow. universal ways of expressing things wow wow i love that uh what do you do when you're not programming um i do a lot of swimming and i i got my license recently so i i've been like 
exploring upstate New York and things like that. Rad. <laughs> and buying land with a couple of friends upstate. What? Cool. How many acres? <laughs> 30 acres. What? Yeah. yeah with what a you, stream. Dope. What are you guys going to do with it? Uh, probably just camp and build little cabins and maybe oh, some weird wow. statues. Dude, we got to talk offline, man. You know, <laughs> I mean, happy to talk online, but like there's no time. We got to talk offline. Um, yeah. Maybe okay. we'll do a functional programming retreat out there. <sighs> Dude, dude, dude. Like we're we're literally on the same same wavelength. Been thinking about things like this for a while. Been doing things like this for a little while. If you go search, you know, you'll find it. I don't yeah. talk too much about it. And was just waking up this morning thinking like the exact same thing. Um, okay, desktop or laptop? Uh, laptop. Nice. Uh, mouse or trackpad? I guess laptop. Tra- so trackpad. Trackpad. Okay. Standing or sitting? Uh, half and half. Nice. Get from the command line or the GUI? Uh, command line. Nice. Vim or Emacs or some other? <laughs> yeah, n- uh, neither. What, yeah. Sublime text? Uh, I mean, I guess Xcode and Atom. Cool. Dope. Tabs or spaces? Spaces, too. <laughs> nice. Uh, tests or no tests? Obviously tests. Oh, tests. Uh, let's see. Let me... Uh, let me pull up your Twitter bio real quick. Uh, I, I like just going to people's Twitters because, you know, that's sort of our view into the human that we're uh, talking to. Uh, come on, Twitter. Pull up. Okay, so tell us a story. I can't see it right now. Oh, I think you're like sitting or something, if I remember correctly. Uh, your profile uh, yeah, picture. That's a photo taken at the old Kickstarter office. It's... I'm sunbathing with an aluminum lid from a catered lunch. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Great. And uh, do you have like a banner? I can't see it right now, but what's your brand? Uh, yeah, it's a mountaintop of a photo I took while I was in Bolivia. Oh wow! I bet that's an interesting story. One day we might, <laughs> one day we might hear that. Okay, cool. Uh, Twitter bio. I can't read it right now, but I'm sure we've already talked about it. Is there anything on there we didn't talk about? Uh, I mean, it's just that I used to work at Kickstarter. I'm available for hire and working on point oh, three. Yeah. Call Brandon. Email him. Yeah. <laughs> hire him. Oh, here we go. Functional believer. Oh, what? Oh, the tin. Oh, it looked like you were sun. Oh, you are sunbathing. Okay, yeah. Oh, how funny. <laughs> uh, that's a beautiful photo, too. Wow. Is that an iPhone photo or like the, the, prof- the yeah, banner? Yeah, yeah, it is. That's with an iPhone? Yeah, the banner. Wow. Yeah, and that's in, but from a long time ago, long before the camera get as good wow. as it is now. And that's in Bolivia. Rad. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where can people contact you online, if at all? Yeah, uh, Twitter, mbrandonw, and email mbw234 at gmail, or brandon at pointfree.co. All right, cool. And one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> weirdly, uh, learn other languages, like Kind of try to dabble in Haskell and PureScript. They'll they'll make you a better Swift programmer by knowing how they approach problems. It's it's all very eye opening, wild stuff out there. Interesting. That's going to be a tough one to convince me of, at least right now. <laughs> but that's that's really interesting. Okay, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show today, for sharing your story with us. You're you know living in New York right now. And, uh, but you know, it wasn't very long ago that you were in Texas, yeah. you know, in high school and you got, you know, you got that computer, you, you worked at a steakhouse and you saved up and you bought that gateway and you started <laughs> doing like flash 
and uh, you started getting clients and building little flash websites, it sounds like. And then, but you you really liked, you know, math. And so you decided to go to NYU and uh, study mathematics all the while you're paying your way, you know, building, uh, building sites, I assume, and still doing programming uh, for your clients. And then, you know, you still are in love with math. You graduate and you go to graduate school to get your PhD in mathematics. So you stop programming for money because uh, you have a stipend and you're, you know, you're doing that for a certain number of, of years and you're, you know, you're going to graduate soon and get your PhD and you see the outlook as a mathematician and you're like, that doesn't really vibe with like my vision of my life and the way I like to, you know, live my life and have control over my destiny. And you, but you're like, you know what, it's all good because I'm a mathematician. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and then you get a MacBook, a white MacBook, and it came with a free iPod Touch. The way Apple changes lives is really interesting. Mm. Changed my life. It's yeah. so interesting. And you, you're like, hey, you know what? Like, this looks cool. Like, I'm going to like program this iPod Touch. And you're still doing your dissertation. And you realize, like, wow, like, I'm rediscovering programming. I love this stuff. Hmm, maybe this is what I could do instead of being a mathematician. So you make a very tough decision and you you don't get your PhD and you leave and you build this game and you live off of this iPhone game, this iOS game. And then you work as a contractor and you join Kickstarter. You do the 1.0 and people want to do Android and you guys do this Android app because the iOS app, which you had built you know, maybe with one or two other people was already successful and you're building this Android app and you come up with this amazing, you know, at least for you guys, you loved like the way you had built it, functional, reactive, test-driven, pair programming. And then you guys do the same thing with Swift. Swift comes out and now you have these two um, apps which are built in a very similar way and you open source them. And then you, uh, you know, five and a half years of that, and then you move on, and now you're an independent consultant. You're living the dream. You're releasing Point Free soon, and just awesome. Oh, <laughs> I love it! Wow, 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 it all wow, at once like that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing that story. I really, really look forward to meeting you in person and seeing. Uh, where this all takes us. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this was fantastic. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time... Go swiftly, my friends.